Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing a collaboration with Alison Myrams, former CEO and current executive chair of Tier 1 construction company Roberts Co. Alison is a distinguished leader with over three decades working in Australia's largest and well-known construction companies. Her journey, marked by resilience and innovation, has not only left an indelible mark on the construction landscape, but has significantly impacted discussions around women in construction and progressive construction and leadership practices. Alison's rise into a transformative figure in the construction industry is nothing short of inspiring. In this episode, we delve into her unique approach to leadership, the challenges she overcame, and the pivotal role she played in reshaping the Australian construction narrative. I hope you enjoy it. Alison, welcome to the podcast. It's a great honor to have you with me here today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For our collaboration, I'd like to focus the conversation around three key topics. The first is exploring your career journey from a contracts administrator all the way up to CEO and this career having developed with some of the biggest construction companies in Australia, companies like Brookfield Multiplex, Lendlease and Roberts Co. The second is your time at Roberts Co. and as its CEO, how you rapidly shaped the company from scratch into a T1 organization that implemented some radically progressive moves. And the third are your reflections and insights into what I think is one of the best things to happen to construction in this country, the five-day work week. There's a lot to get through and I'm uh, <laughs> really looking forward to <laughs> getting through it. <laughs> now, before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd like to ask you a couple of brief questions to paint a picture of you for our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can tell me where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Sydney, Royal North Shore Hospital. Grew up in Linfield. And where did you go to school? Primary school, I went to Linfield Demonstration School. It was mm-hmm. across the road from home. And then high school, I went to MLC at Burwood. Did you have any inkling what you wanted to do post-schooling? Initially, probably year eight, year nine, I wanted to be a forensic scientist. And one day dad said to me, you know, you'll never speak to your patients. I was like, yeah, good point. Actually, they'll all be dead. (laughs) I was very good at sewing at school. I won the prize for three unit textiles and design. So a lot of people thought I'd go into fashion. But the way dad raised my sister and I and the way he was raised from his father was look at that building, look at the architecture, look at the cranes you know, look at all the methods. And dad raised my sister and I the same way. If you think about fashion and building, you are following a pattern to make something. So we're very practical people. And so really probably from dad's influence, I went into building, my sister's a civil engineer. So mum said at dad's funeral that in many respects, John got two sons and mum got two daughters. Was there anything in particular about construction that really led you into that path rather than fashion or something like that? No, I think it's just the practicality of it and you can see what you deliver. Initially, I studied quantity surveying. I wanted to be a QS. I wanted to work in an office and have beautiful clothes and beautiful shoes. That was my ambition in life. (laughs) So it wasn't that I aspired to be a builder per se it was to be in the industry as a 17 year old girl leaving school I didn't think I would be a builder on a building site what did it look like post quantity surveying and how did your career journey take off well I started out as a QS at a company called Travis Partners and I was in the QS section there I left there and went to a project management company for 12 months and they ran out of work and made me redundant 
but I'd been working on a multiplex project for Progress Developments, the company. And they said, we need to retrench you, but we've spoken to Multiplex and told them they should employ you. And I said, I don't want to work for a builder. I've got no interest in working for a builder. I really didn't want to do it. I was going for a job as a tenant rep at the time and the company I was talking to had a a hiring freeze and said, we can't employ you. So I took the job with Multiplex. I failed my first interview and I was all of 21 or 22 living at home. I had no expenses, but I really felt like I had to have a job. Dad put a really good work ethic into us. And so I took the job and three months in, I got a phone call from the tenant rep company saying, we'd really like to employ you. And I said, I've taken this job. I should give it a go. And I left there 16 years later. During your time at Brookfield Multiplex, and this is a period of time we made some enormous gains in in the company. So what did the the industry look like at that point in time? When I started in 98, there was porn in the lunch sheds. There was porn in the toolbox lids. And as you walked on site, they'd open the lid as you walked past. There was wolf whistles. The industry has changed a lot. I didn't have a toilet on site for the first the first year and I remember saying to the guys how come there's a guy's toilet not a girl's toilet and they said oh we could only build one so we built a boys I was like okay and when you're one out when you're on your own you don't complain you just suck it up and move on and I really didn't realize that was wrong probably till 10 years ago you accept it you don't make waves because you are the odd one out having said that I worked with incredible people you know the teams I worked in were awesome and that's what that's what kept me in the industry and kept me there for 16 years and I think That's part of the issue with construction is it's so addictive. If you could bottle the feeling of team that you get delivering a construction project and sell it, you'd be worth more than a drug dealer. It's so addictive. And that's why people do the big hours because you love being there. It's unhealthy for you. But it's a lot of fun. So the industry is is very different today and there's a lot more women on sites now and that sort of stuff. Back then it was me and the site secretary. And once you're accepted, you're very much accepted, very much a part of the team. You're just one of the boys. You're treated equally. You, you've got to get to the point where you're accepted. But once you do, it's it's an incredible feeling to be part of a team delivering a really hard, complex project and Forever you walk past and go, I built that. You know, my son hates it. We drive around Sydney and I go, Mummy built that. Mummy worked on that one. <laughs> what did you have to do to get to that point where you became part of the part of the team? You've got to be good at your job. You've got to be prepared to put in the hard yards and do the long hours and be there all the time. And I, and I don't mean 24-7. I mean, if the guys are there working, then you're working with them. It's not a nine to five job. I wish it was, but it's not. Ultimately, when they work out you're intelligent, they do give you respect. My role, I was a bit fortunate in that I was a contracts administrator, contracts manager, commercial manager. I controlled the finances on site. I picked who would win a tender and who wouldn't win a tender based on the assessment that I did. You know, you compare all of it, the price, you get it all apples for apples, you interview them who's got the best price, who's got the best understanding of the job, who's got the best people to come to the project when we need them and out of that you're a water tender. So I was in a position to hand out work. So I got a level of respect purely by my job. But I'd been tender interviews and I'd always take the project manager of the job or the design manager with me to make or the site manager to make sure the people who were delivering on site knew what was going on in that package. And I'd walk out, you know, I'd ask a question and they'd answer to the guy and I'd ask a question, they'd answer to the guy and I'd ask a question, they'd answer to the guy and I'd walk out and I'd say, he's not getting the job. And they'd be like, why? He was awesome. I said, he wouldn't talk to me. He's not getting a job. And ultimately, it was a bit of an eye opener for the guys sitting beside me as well, because they don't see it. Not because 
they're stupid. It's 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 just something they don't recognise, where it's something women recognise. And after a while, subbies would give you the respect and they'd walk out of a meeting and they'd say, she did something in there, but I don't know what she did. <laughs> and very early on, I figured that if I said please and thank you, I'd go a long way in the industry. Mm. To say to subbies, we don't build, we manage. Can you tell me how you're going to do the work? And that was quite a differentiator because a lot of guys will say to them, you'll do this, you'll do that and try to be the alpha male or try to be the smartest person in the room, I'm happy not to be the smartest person in the room. And I'd say, can you tell me how you're going to do the work? And you kind of see their shoulders go back and their chest puff out and go, right, well, what we know, we're going to do this. And then you get a really good relationship out Mm. of it. So it's, you've got to work hard. You've got to be good at your job. You've got to not sweat the small stuff. If they say stuff that you don't like, Wash over it. Wash Don't over. be a princess. Mm. Um, it's not a place for being a princess. You know, you're not you're not in numbers. You've just got to ignore it. It's not directed at you. It's around you. If it's directed to you, then absolutely that's not right. But if it's just in the room, then just yeah. ignore it yeah. and move on. And I figure you also would have made your team's job a whole lot easier in terms of managing trades after they're on the on the job. Yeah, a thorough understanding. Totally. So actually, make everybody's life. Incredibly easy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was the pro- that was the idea. So, in terms of progression, you're in contracts administrator role, going into contract contracts management, all the way up to the regional director. You've categorised a couple of these moves as sink or swim moments in your career. Would love to understand, firstly, why you thought that, and then also how you made sure that it, you made a success with these roles as you took these opportunities. My career was built by two men. I had two sponsors who were internal who were amazing to me. And my first job at Travis was John Humphreys. He was the manager of the QS section of the company. He took me to every site inspection. He sent me on every training course. And I started work when MS-DOS was around. And so when Excel and Word and Windows came out, he sent me on every training course. He was amazing. And then I started at Multiplex and Jim McGravy was my boss's boss's boss. And he was the construction manager of the project. And I looked at his role and thought, that job looks pretty good. He's just across a couple of projects, you know, a bit all care and no responsibility. I was like, yeah, I'd like to be a construction manager. So that became my next aspiration. And every time Jim got promoted, he pulled me with him. So I have not asked for a promotion or a role at any point in time in my career. They've all been offered to me. I was offered the commercial manager role 12 months before I actually took it. I turned it down and I said to Jim, I'm having too much fun on site, really love the team I was with, I want to do another job with them. And then he said to me, the job finished, he said, you've got to come to head office now. I had three meetings with him and the last meeting was three hours and he said, you've got to make a decision and I said, I don't know what to do. And in the end I said to him, you've looked after me through my whole career and this was eight years into my time at Maltese. I'm just going to trust you that this is the right thing for me. And I took the role and then within six months he was talking to me about becoming a director. I haven't asked Jim why he promoted me, but if I look at why I would promote someone, I was very good at my job. I was very diligent and loyal and I was good in reporting up in that I gave him the world on a page. You know, I didn't say, well, I could do this or I could do that or, you know, what I've done. I'd say yes or no because blah. So he got the answers very quickly, very succinctly, which made his job easier. So that was probably a key as to why he liked working with me. 
and he knew I was very diligent in everything I did. And he could say that, you know, it, when you're in a senior position, you want people underneath you who are really competent, who, who make your life easier because the easier your life is, the more you can do in your role. With your time at, at Maltese, there was also then an opportunity that came up, which is the next big jump into general manager with Lend-Lease. I'd like to understand, firstly, why you thought that was the next best thing for you and why you decided to wrap up your time at Maltese and take a different, I guess, a different trajectory. So 2013, my son was born. Went on maternity leave for a year. The guys were pretty shocked when I got pregnant. And I, I remember some of them saying to me, did it take you ages to get pregnant? I was like, no, it was like six months. Because I'd always said I'm not having children. I was always having children. I just wasn't going to tell work I was having children because you don't know you can have a child until you've had a child biologically. If I said I'm going to have children, being in such a male-dominated company, I was worried they'd put a brick on my head and stop my career and then I'd have no child and no career. And so I always said, no, I'm not going to do it. I have tried to reverse that at Roberts and I say to the girls all the time, can you please get pregnant? Can you please get pregnant and go on maternity leave and come back so I've got a poster child that you can do this to put it up for other women. So I went on maternity leave, came back, had 12 months off, took an extra month because my son, the crazy thing with maternity leave, you take 12 months, but you don't get to their first birthday because you go off before the birth. So I took another month and I was at home past Matt's first birthday, saw him walk, all that, you know, I saw all the milestones, which was great. And I came back and my boss said to me, we don't want to give you your old job back because the guy that's been doing it might resign. And I said to him, that's called illegal. It's my job. I told you I was coming back four days a week. At the same time, Len Lace rang and said, we know you're a mum, new mum returning to work. We want you to come and run our New South Wales ACT building business. It was no extra money but it was an incredible opportunity. I'd given Multiplex 16 years of blood, sweat and tears. I bled black and white. And for them to say, we don't want to give you your old job back was just, it took me years to get over that. And I vowed never ever to take a woman's job away from her when she returns from maternity leave. Because when you have a child, everything in your life changes except your job. And the only thing that didn't change, he took away from me. So I went to Len Lease and it was an incredible, incredible company. And it was actually an incredible blessing because the culture at Multiplex was work hard, play harder. And at points in time, I was that ass that said, if you left at five o'clock jokingly, if you put your leaf form in. I went to Len Lease. At Multiplex, it was really one person had to do two jobs. And at Len Lease, there were three people for two jobs. When I initially looked at it, I was like, God, I can get rid of half these people. But resisting that urge, the company worked, the company made a lot of good money and I got my life back. When I was at Maltese, I always thought you should be at one company and be there for 20 or 30 years. When I changed to Lend Lease and saw a different way, I actually think you should change companies every 10 years to see something different because I needed to see something different to realise what I was doing and how I was working mm. wasn't right and wasn't normal. It's really interesting because as a company, you always want to keep the best and yeah. keep, almost keep them forever. But ironically, that might not actually be the best thing for people Correct. in the in the long term. I guess it's a delicate balance, isn't it? You get better employees mm. if people have seen a few different things. You know, you'll take a bit from each person. Yeah. You'll take a bit from a good manager. You'll take a lot from a bad manager of what you won't do. 
and then they bring that experience to you. And, and it is hard, but I think you've just got to have a philosophical view that you're going to get better employees longer term. If or if everybody does that. Yeah. yeah. What would you say some of your key insights and learnings are from both from yourself and the industry at the time? So I'm thinking more from like how your leadership style developed in general manager's role, managing people rather than sort of managing projects, yeah. managing the business. When I moved at Multis, when I moved from being a commercial manager to a director, Jim said to me at the time, it'll take you a year to change your thinking. And I laughed at him and I said, as if, and it did. Yeah. It, it takes a long time to change your thinking from the immediacy of a project mm. of a concrete pour to looking two years, five years out. The change that happened in me at the time of going to Lend Lace was I was a new mum. So I would get in at 8.30, uh, drop Matt at daycare at 8, I'd be in at 8.30, I'd leave at 5. Hard stop at 5, I'm out the door. If you want me after 5, you have to call me. And between six and eight, I turn everything off and I'm with Matt. And when he's in bed, I'm happy to log back on again. I actually became a really, really efficient worker because pre-Matt, I could sit at the lunch table and talk, could chew the fat for two hours if I wanted. I just meant I worked till seven or eight o'clock at night. It was just me that suffered and my husband was unhappy, but it wasn't that I had a small child that wasn't fed or something. So I became very efficient and that then means you focus on what you can, what you need to focus on. And you let all the rest of it go because you don't need to worry about that, you know, the 80-20 rule. And very much empowering your staff to make decisions and that sort of thing so that they get experience, they get exposure, pushing them up as well. Before we jump on to your time at Roberts Pizzarotti, I'd like to just pause on the topic of mentors and, and guidance. So you mentioned you had two, first at Travis McEwen and at Multiplex. In terms of, were there any other specific individuals that played a key role in? Yeah, no, in- I've had a lot of mentors. My husband is in the property industry. So Paul has been a mentor the entire time and an enormous supporter and enabler. I couldn't have the career I had without him doing half of what he does at home. And everything we do is 50-50 in terms of drop-offs, pickups, house cleaning, cooking, everything. He's amazing. I had a coach at Multiplex. I had a coach at Lend-Lease. I've got another mentor who's a lady who runs a company called All About People. And I talk to her about people issues. And then I've got people that I go to and ask questions of. So a lot of people struggle with, do I need a mentor or don't I need a mentor? Or do I need a coach? The way I look at it, Tiger Woods is the best golfer in the world. He's still had a coach. Because you don't know what you don't know. The key to that is to having someone who you respect and whose advice you will take. If you don't respect them and take their advice, it's a waste of time. But it's a critical part of your personal and professional development to have somebody or actually it's not even one person it doesn't sound like that it sounds like a group of people that have helped to build you up yeah yeah and and one person doesn't know everything you know I couldn't ask my husband about people issues he'd tell me to sack everyone um so you've got to have people who in their skill set can help advise you definitely a key takeaway I think let's jump into your time at Roberts so yeah 2017 so I'd love to understand how that opportunity presented itself and also maybe the story about how you got into the role and some of the nuances behind it. 2017, I took a phone call from George Costas, who's one of our directors. And when I was at Multiplex, George was the Australian joint MD. So I had worked with George for a while and he left when I went on maternity leave. He went to Dubai and then came home and he rang me and said, Andrew's going to start again. So it's Andrew Roberts, whose father founded Multiplex. Andrew's going to come back into construction. We want you to run it. And I was like, really? So I had 
a couple of meetings with George and I was a bit undecided. I was pretty comfortable at Lendlease. Lendlease had an incredible workbook. As a construction company, we were delivering incredible projects and I was comfortable there and I said, look, no, I won't do it. Turned it down and kept going at Lendlease. And three months later, he came back to me and he said, I want one more crack at you. If you say no this time, I will leave you alone. I'm like, okay. So I had a meeting with him and I had a meeting with Andrew and we talked about it and I was still undecided. And he rang me and he said, what's, what's your mentor saying? And he knows my husband, Paul. And I said, oh, I don't know. You talk to him. So he did. They went and had a coffee. Paul came home with the business plan drawn up on a piece of paper and he looked at me and he said, you've got rocks in your head if you don't do this. But it's entirely your decision. I said, so if I don't do it, you'll never mention it again. He was like, yeah, sure. I was still undecided. And I spoke to a subby who's a really good mate. And I said to him, what do you think? And he knows George well as well. And he said to me, I'll ask you one question. If you don't do it and it's a screaming success, will you regret it? Because if your answer is yes, you've got to go. And, and I think, you know, as much as I hated him putting that in my face, it's a really good question. And, and that really flowed through into how we created the company of if I don't do it, who will? And so blank piece of paper, I got $45 million of equity to create the best construction company you can. One of my friends says to me, I was kicked up the ass by a rainbow. <laughs> you know, it's an amazing opportunity, but also very daunting. Fortunately, I don't know what I don't know. If I knew what I know now, six years ago, I probably would have been curled up in the fetal position crying. I'd love to just start from the top. Um, what was your mindset? Mindset was building was easier 20 years ago than it is today. It was easier when I started in 98 than today. We're not cheaper. We're not quicker. We're probably safer. We don't have better quality, but it's harder. So if you have a blank sheet of paper, if you look at the industry, we suffer from very high divorce rate. Presenteeism is rife. We, were, we wear busy as a badge of honour. Um, 2% of tradespeople are women, 13% of women, 13% of the um, industry are women, which is the same number it was 35 years ago. So if you look at those things and say, in addition to it's harder, we're not making more money, you have an opportunity to change all that if you do something different mm. and have a better company. And that really resonated with all the people coming out of tier one companies. It was my biggest recruitment tool then to say, hey, we're going to be better. We're going to make it easier for you. I am going to give you your life back and I'm going to give you a career and you can have both. You don't have to choose. Mm. And so everything we did was then when you're making a decision was we want to build a better way. And, and that's our tagline, but everything in the company is, are you building a better way? Is this going to be easier, better, better for people, for clients, for subbies, for us? In, in every respect, not just financial, but better life, better environment, better quality, better safety. What were the some of the things that you thought instantly need to be put in place? Like all good builders, we sat down and wrote a program and then we systematically worked through the program. Yep. So we said we need to have a quality system, quality safety environment system. So get that in place. We needed to have really good people because people build projects. If you have good people, the projects go well, the client's happy, the subbies make money, we make money. So the first 10 odd employees that we had, we sat in a room and we wrote a list of names. And if anyone around the table went, oh, they got scrubbed. So it was a pretty high bar yeah. to get in. And that meant 
that we had really good people. So then we said, okay, well, we want really good people. We want really good clients. And and by good clients, I mean a client that'll say please and thank you and appreciate our team. People are on a construction project for 18 months, two years. And if you're working for a client that's not a nice person, it's a really hard grind. People are very loyal. So they'll stay, they'll finish the job, but they leave at the end. I've put them through two years of hard graft and then they leave and I've lost a really good employee. So that's just not a good business equation. Really good focus in design. We're going to put technology in to do the grunt work. And so really, if I summarise it, we look back through our careers, what worked, repeat it, what didn't work, don't ever do it again. 20 years ago, between 7am and Smoko, Smoko on lunch, lunch and afternoon, there was no one in the site office. All the guys were out on site. If you're going to build a site office today, they're all in there on computers. But the work is still out there being built. So who's supervising it? So the idea is to get technology to do the grunt work for us. If you ask contractors how many pieces of software they use, they'll probably say 20 or 30, and they don't all link. So then you've got all this data entry between software, which A, you can make an error, and B, your people are now data entry clerks, not builders and engineers. So try and get tech to do the grunt work for us. The last piece, which makes a big difference to our subbies, is to streamline everything in the company. So streamlined integrated management system. When I first read it, I said to them, are we going to get accredited? There's nothing in it. The reality is you don't have to have much, but everyone just loads them up over time and never cleans them out. Mm. So constantly make that slim. When I started at Multis, the contract was 12 pages. Yes, it was in six-point font and there were no margins, but it was 12 pages. When I left Len Lease, it was over 120. Yeah. So we said, right, page limited, got the lawyers to write it and said, um, you can't be any more than 20 pages. Now, I didn't get to 20 pages. I got to 24 pages. But the reality of that is contracts are signed. They're executed quickly. It says in black ink will be fair and reasonable. And then our people and the subbies can spend their time solving construction problems Mm. where their brains are trained, not doing paperwork. Because you never have plan A on a site. You need plan A, B and C. When plan A doesn't work, that you can go to B or C. So it was all about how do we make it better at every point in the journey. And that's the strategy we set six years ago. It's still in place today. It has not changed because it's still relevant. Do you think it's easier given that you're starting from scratch? Totally. And I think that's why a lot of companies struggle to make the change because it's not one thing. It's the sum of a lot of low-hanging fruit, which is very, very hard to change. And we took nothing from another company. Everything was written bespoke. The first day I started, I said to them, um, who do I give my pay details to? You know, I need an employment contract and pay details. And they're like, oh, we don't have one of those. You need to write it. And I kind of had that, oh my God, what have I done moment of, God, I have to actually write everything. Because I used to say in my recruitment talks to people, you know, it's a blank sheet of paper, it's so exciting. You're writing the playbook, you know, you can do anything. To an engineer, that's terrifying. Because they want to know I go from A to B to C to D. They don't want to know that there's just a mess of letters in there and, and you can pick whatever you want. Mm. And a recruiter said to me, you've got to change your pitch. It's terrifying them. I was like, what do you mean? Because I find it really exciting. I was like, yeah, okay. So I had to get into the head of who I was um, talking to at the time mm. to try and do the pitch properly. Let's jump into leading the company on a, on a very steep growth trajectory. So one of the key things that we touched on was building the right teams and, and attracting and retaining talent. So. I think the first thing is what were your thoughts on company culture, given your starting clean, how you wanted to put that together and what the company was going to stand for in terms of in terms of culture? So people were recruited on 
their belief that it could be better. So if anyone believed that the way the industry was was the right way, it, they wouldn't have fitted in the culture. You had to believe first and foremost that we could make a difference and we could make a change. Then we looked at technical capability. So everyone that came in the company early had the desire and the drive to make a difference. And I think that was really important. From there, the culture was really set by, not by me necessarily, by a lot of the senior people in the company. And one day we did a, I got all the project managers in a room and and site managers and we did a, we were writing the procedure for bullying and harassment. And I didn't write it. And I said to the team, if this happens, what do we do? And they said, well, that's a notice or that's a dismissal. And then I said, well, if Darren does this, if Damien does that, and I named people that were in the room to make people well aware because it's all well and good to write a policy until you implement it and then you go, oh, but Harry's a really good guy. We can't get rid of Harry. So when we wrote the policy, I named senior people and said if Darren goes out and grabs a girl's boobs, what are we going to do with him? And they wrote the policy exactly how I wanted it and I hoped it would be written, but it was written by them. So they then owned that. So when we got to the point where some people were not living that policy or not living the values that we created in the company, the teams called them out and said to me, that person's got to go. That's not how we operate here or that person's not right. And so for me, that was the greatest sign that we got it right when the team started calling it out. And the, the company set the values. I didn't write them. The company put them together in workshops um, and, and they really do live them. Yeah, that's incredibly important, isn't it? Because yeah. then it's, you've given the ownership to others and yeah. therefore the company starts to take on its own. Yeah, and I said to them with the values when we sat them, I said, there's only one one rule from me. I'm not having trust, integrity and respect. They're a ticket to play. Yeah. If you don't have them, you shouldn't be you here. shouldn't be here. There are too many companies that put those values up that don't live them. If you don't have them, we don't want you and then we'll put the rest on the wall. Let's jump into the five-day work week. So this is one of the things which I think is one of the most important steps in construction. And honestly, I can't believe that it's still given this, this level of, there's just some awe about the fact that it's in, in the industry because uh-huh. as an outsider, you think even two days is not nearly enough time to get what you need done and to rest up and to look after family. And the fact that a lot of companies work six days, a lot mm. of people in companies work six days, it's just, it's exhausting even just thinking about it. So. Yeah. What I'd like to focus on is not necessarily what what Project 5 was, because Mm. I think that's been really well documented, but I'd like to focus on the commitment required to make change in construction. And I feel like that in itself is probably, I guess, the most important thing about why it it was able to take off is because there was was commitment and it took a lot to get it there. That's what I'd like to focus on. If I look back through my career, I have always been game to speak up. I have always been game to say, no, that's not right. When I got promoted to director, one of the foremen on my first job, when I started a week in, he said to me, you won't last. When I became a director, he sent me an email and I've kept it because he said, you haven't ruffled a few feathers this time, you plucked the whole turkey. It's probably with that backbone and that happiness to speak out and say this isn't right that we took it on and that I took it on. We were very fortunate that health infrastructure said yes. I needed a client to back it and to support it. And so we had 100% commitment from health infrastructure. So whilst we pushed something, our client had to support it and own it, and they did, and they were amazing. When I look again back through my career, if something hasn't been right and I'm in a position to change it, 
I have hit my head against a brick wall until I've gotten through it. And I will keep doing that. A lot of people say, why did you try so hard? If I didn't do it, who would? Because for 35 years, the numbers haven't changed. And a massive barrier to getting women into the industry is six days a week. So we had to do it. We have been very careful not to talk a lot about what we were going to do until we'd done it. So we started speaking after we'd done it. So it wasn't it wasn't that you could say, oh, they're all talk, they're not doing it. It was, this is what we have done. And I think as well, part of it is I don't get attacked for my technical capability. They might not like the change and they'll attack the change, but you can't attack me personally because I do understand. I did live on construction sites for eight Mm. years. I've got that technical street cred that you need to have. Has it been hard? Unbelievably. Have I taken barbs? A huge amount. But I sleep well at night because they're not my issue. The people that are saying the things they're saying, they have an issue and they have to sleep with what they've said about me or the company, knowing full well it's all a pack of lies. And I think, you know, poor you, you've got to live with that on your conscience, not me. And my brother-in-law has a really good saying of let your conscience be your guide. I am so comfortable with what we've done. And there are hard days, don't get me wrong. You know, they've brought me to tears a few times and people think I'm really hard and I am, but I'm still a girl. I'm still someone's daughter, sister, wife, mother. So over time it does get to you. But when I have a hard day, I go out to our sites and I see the happiness on our people's faces and I think, yep, this is right, keep going. And you get small wins along the way. When we released the the report on Project 5, there was 100 or 120 people in the room and I just felt this enormous weight off my shoulders. I nearly, nearly cried happy tears. It was such a relief to see the report done and out there and it's so successful. Then Department of Defence released a tender on Garden Island and in that they said we want to explore the five-day work week. The CFMEU in Victoria has just uh, surveyed their 35,000 members. Over 14,000 people responded and over 82% of them said we'd like to work five days a week. So I see those things and I'm like, yes, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. I, I don't need and I don't want anyone to say that I've done something amazing or that I've made a change. I just want the change to happen. And to see it, people saying, I want it, I need it, can you please offer it? is just so good and that's what gives me the adrenaline to keep going given that it's such a such a needed change yeah why is there still resistance (laughs) that's a great question the construction industry's biggest hurdle Mm. is the status quo and it's an industry of that's the way we've always done it when we started at concord health said to us can you study it so we engage unsw a whole lot of people said i'll wait for the research i'm like it's two and a half years away you know it's the right thing to do just do it Oh, no, I'll wait for the research. So I kind of regret doing the research because it was two and a half years that you didn't respond. And on Concord, at the back end of the job, we were in the height of COVID. We were in that 18-week lockdown. We worked three weeks straight, seven days a week because the hospital said, can you please hand the hospital over early? Because they had COVID patients in RPA. And Concord was perfect hospital for it, single bed, ensuite rooms, really good negative pressure. So we did. So everyone will say, yeah, but they work three weeks, seven days a week at the back end. I don't hide from that. They asked us to accelerate. We did. But can we focus on the two and a half years that they worked five days a week? The naysayers look at this little piece. I look at the two and a half years and say, how amazing. There's a lot of research being done at the moment through the culture standard that the New South Wales government's bringing out, and it does have five days a week in it. There are five or six pilot projects in um, study at the moment. And what we're seeing in that is that people initially say, I don't know how to work. I don't know how I'll manage. Will I lose money? 
how do I do the hours? Because they do do longer hours mm. Monday to Friday if they want the same level of overtime. As soon as they experience it, they go, oh, my God, this is amazing. I'm never mm. going back. So I think it's just that fear of the unknown. Again, construction companies, very old, very big, don't know how to change, don't know how to program it. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. All we have done is take Saturday hours and put them through Monday to Fridays from three to five in the afternoons. The next step is then to look at productivity in the industry, which we know is really low. And we'll get to seven till three Monday to Friday. It won't be this year or next year, but in five years' time, the industry will be seven till three Monday to Friday week. It's still big days. And they are when you think the people on site are doing physical work. It's not the mental drain. The guys and girls on site at the moment will do 50 or 60 hours and then we say be safe. You know, those two things don't go together. Yeah, fatigue and making the right calls and decisions. Absolutely. And you know that sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Mm. It was so successful for us as a business. All of our projects in New South Wales now are five days a week. It's We don't give clients an option. There's no extra time. There's no extra cost. People get more rest. People are happier. They're healthier. They're with their families and friends. It's such a no-brainer. It kills me. You know, you mentioned that's one of the roadblocks for women getting into Mm. construction. I reckon that's a huge block for men as well. We do half days on Saturdays as well. And it's a very unproductive day. Yeah. They go in, they have a barbecue, they check Facebook, they check Instagram, they probably check Snapchat, whatever the latest things are. But you're still Um, at work. You're at work and you're hungover. It makes no sense. Mm. And... If Saturdays was paid at half time, no one would work it. But Saturdays is double time. So we say to the industry, don't finish it today. Finish it tomorrow and I'll pay you double. But they can do it Monday to Friday. They can still get the same. And and a lot of the people say, well, the workers will lose money, so therefore they won't get it. We need to separate what should they earn and what should they, the hours they should work. They're two separate, out, they're two separate answers. So work those out individually and then put it together. Mm-hmm. But don't let working hours drive your pay packet because that's not right for your long-term health. One of the things that I I would love to understand is given that you've done so much for women and men in construction to try and balance work, health, happiness, family, how have you been able to manage your own well-being? I didn't manage my own well-being when I was at Maltese. I didn't. I worked very, very hard. Mm. And I have a lot of personal sacrifice in that time. And it was only when I went to Lend-Lace that I realised what I had done was wrong and that I could actually have a career and I could make a difference. I am addicted to work as well. You know, I love what I do. And I don't think you could survive in the industry if you didn't love it. So part of it is me and my work ethic. And stepping back this year to part-time work, I had to work out what to do with myself at night because every night I'd be reading on my laptop or on my phone. And everyone would talk about all this Netflix series I've watched and I'd be like, what, what series is that? I could never work out how people had time to do that. Matt coming along showed me that I had to prioritise things differently and so I've not missed anything in his life and I have always worked around his calendar to beat his athletics or volunteer at his swimming or, you know, to, to attend all of his events. I've always managed to do that. Schools being organised is very important for working parents to yeah. get enough notice to be able to get there. It, it is a juggle and I think, I do think you can have it all, but your all will change throughout your life. You know, what's important to you? A 21-year-old, their all might be going to the gym and being able to surf every day versus me is to have time with Matt in the morning and the evenings when he's not at school. So some work-life integration really and then being yeah. flexible enough to, to change. Yeah, yeah, and I think working from home has enabled that. I don't think working from home 100% is the right answer. But I do think, and the way we set the company up, was you've got an iPhone, an iPad, a tablet, 
you can do your work from anywhere. If you need to be at home, you need to be at home. If your kids are sick, you've got to be at home. If you need to take your parents to the doctor or your parents to an appointment, you can do that. We're contactable anywhere. I don't care if you do your work from the moon, just so long as what we need gets done. So I think that has made a big difference as well. COVID, as sad as it was, was brilliant for the construction industry. It put us into the fastest and largest experiment on flexible working mm. and it was a resounding success. Still works, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And all the dinosaurs that had say, you can't have a part-time job, you can't work remotely, we can. So it, it was good in that regard. So I am a very organised person. I put everything in my diary, but I do prioritise Matt when I need to work on weekends. I'll say to Paul on a Saturday morning or Friday night, I need to do three hours what have we got on and then I'll work it around what the family's doing so I don't miss out but I can still get it done and I don't let my staff see when I'm working because I don't want them to look up and go I don't want your job you work too hard. Career ambition what I'd love to understand is given you've had this full spectrum of progression was it part of your plan to get to say CEO or was it just about doing the best thing? I made the most of every opportunity. Mm. What was given to me, I grabbed it and ran with it. No, I had no aspiration. As I said, I wanted to have beautiful clothes and beautiful shoes. You know, that was my initial career dream. Then to be a construction manager was the next one. And I never looked past that. I haven't had one. And people look at me and say, she's really career focused and really ambitious. And when I've stepped back this year, they're like, what are you going to do? No, there's more to it. You're going to do more. I'm like, I'm not. I am actually not career focused. I work very hard. If you give me a job, I'm very loyal. I'm a very dedicated employee and I'll, I'll run 110% for you, but I don't seek the next thing. If you have a set plan, you might say no to something that's amazing because it's not on your plan. It might be a sideways step or a sideways upward step, but it's not on your plan, but it might actually leapfrog your plan to do something different. So it can make you blinkered. You're never quite sure though where it's going to take you. So there's still that element of unknown. Alison, I'd like to end on one final question. And that's, I guess, your fondest memory in your career journey and and why that stands out. One thing that was really, really special was it was probably 2009. We had an apprentice on the casino project and that was one of my projects we looked after. And he was, I'll get his age wrong, but in his early 20s and he had a party at home and he jumped off the garage into the pool and he broke his neck and he became quadriplegic and he was flown to Ron or Shaw and he almost drowned because you are instantly paralyzed and had to have a tracheotomy put in and was in ICU for a month I think and I rang his father and said just tell Jake he's got a job when he comes back get him better he's got a job don't worry about it and I moved his family down to stay in an apartment next to Royal North Shore Hospital because they lived on the Central Coast and his girlfriend at the time, Amy, now his wife. And I went and saw Jake in hospital and I said to Jake, mate, you've got a job. You just focus on getting yourself better and out of hospital and we'll find a job. He was a carpenter. That was going to be hard. And he'd just bought a house and moved in with his girlfriend. And so we got our apprentices and... We renovated his house. Fitzpatrick and Partners did the design for me, James Fitzpatrick. We rotated our apprentices through the house a week at a time to rebuild the house that was a weatherboard cottage so that when he came home, he could move back into the house with ramps and everything. And then I went and saw him at rehab. We held a fundraising lunch for him and I interviewed at the time, I interviewed Graham Richardson over lunch and the subbies donated so generously we raised over two hundred and thirty thousand dollars for him at lunch we put in a trust account for him and 
I didn't ask for permission to do any of it from work. I just did it. As a mother, as a human being, you just want to help people. And we could help him by using the skills of the company. And what I didn't realise at the time, I didn't appreciate the feedback from the staff was, wow, Multiplex really cares about our people. And the people became more engaged with Multiplex as a result. But it was just, you know, I've built incredible projects. I've worked with amazing people. But to be able to put a young man's life back on track after such a tragic accident was such a blessing. And he is the most incredible young man. He's gone on to talk at the United Nations and he's just, he's gone from strength to strength. He came back. We trained him as a contracts administrator. The team had to be taught how to deal with someone in a wheelchair. He had Dragon software. He had an earpiece for his iPhone and he could work for us. And he worked for Maltese for a few years before he left and went on to do even greater things. Alison, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for sharing your journey, your insights and your experiences. It's been fantastic. Can't wait to share it. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Alison and her amazing journey through the ranks of some of Australia's most well-known construction companies. Through Alison's stories, we've gained a wealth of insight into Australian construction and leadership. Alison's emphasis on values-driven leadership and her constant pursuit of change has not only elevated her career, but has become a catalyst for transformation. From reshaping the work week to fostering inclusivity, her impact has been far-reaching. We've explored her journey from challenging the norms to creating a workplace culture that prioritizes well-being and family. Alison's story is a testament to authentic leadership, challenging some very deep-seated norms and building businesses that prioritize people over processes. Alison, a huge thank you for sitting down and speaking with me. Now to wrap things up, I have some big news. This episode will be the final episode for season three and for the podcast as a whole for the foreseeable future. After three seasons, I've decided to give the regular recording schedule a break in order to make room for the things I want to focus on in the future. I've come to realise I can only sustainably do so much in a day and sometimes things have to move to the side to make room for other priorities. At the moment, those things are being with my family, building Factor PM, which is going from strength to strength, and my great love of cycling. Where there is an opportunity to collaborate on a recording, I'll likely do so, but it won't be on a regular schedule. As my listener, I want to express my deepest and sincerest thanks to you for coming with me on this journey. I hope you too have been able to gain insight into how my guests have gone about achieving the successes they have over their careers. If listening has given you the nudge to achieve what's most important to you, then my task in producing this podcast has been a success. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the people that made this podcast possible. First of all, my guests without which there would be no podcast. Secondly, my wife, Bridie, who had a significant role to play in organising my guests, particularly for season three. The last and most significant person is my mum. Mum has been with me from the very beginning. She helped me distill my initial idea into something tangible, acted as a sounding board while I was getting my first few recordings underway, and has been the podcast editor of each and every episode. Mum, I'm so thankful for you going with me on this journey. I think we've both learned a hell of a lot along the way. Well, that's it from me for this month. Thank you again for tuning in and we'll see where this podcast goes in the future. Take care and bye for now. <laughs>